Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 42 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. You know, as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, I began offering an online Zoom open Sangha every week as a way of supporting, you know, existing and new everyday Buddhism followers during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's unlike the twice-monthly private donation-supported everyday Sangha because the open Sangha is just that, open to the public and free. You do have to sign up so that you'll get a notification, but other than that, it is open and free. But onward to the sort of the meaning behind this story. Um, In the Open Sangha, a few regulars have shown up since I started this, uh, probably about maybe two months ago. I think it was uh, maybe at the end of March uh, when the pandemic was really just starting to ramp up and and we were all kind of locked in our homes. Um, so a few regulars show up weekly, including existing everyday Sangha members, and some new participants join on occasion. In late April, a small group joined the Sangha, and I gave a Dharma talk on how we can have a noble response to affliction and suffering, and how affliction and suffering can contribute to our overall happiness by offering more meaning to our lives because we can reframe our little stories with meaning to become big stories. This typically happens in um, chaotic like natural events like uh, a weather events or something and it brings everybody together um, to see things a little differently than we would in our day-to-day, you know, insular in our own head lives. Um, The other situation that comes to mind is a 9-11 for most of us. Um, And also, you know, the world wars for people who are that generation, but there's not many of those left. So this is a relatively new sort of suffering uh, situation that we find ourselves in. But back to the the open sangha that uh, late April. So um, after the Dharma talk, I opened up the sangha meeting for questions, comments, and sharing. The sangha members shared areas where life had taken on more meaning for them and where they noticed bigger stories sort of emerging um, from their changed lives as we make our way through the challenges of living in a global pandemic. So we were about to end the meeting with a meta prayer. Now a meta prayer for those that don't know is the prayer of loving kindness. Meta, the word meta is from the Pali meaning goodwill or loving kindness. And this prayer is a way of forming intentions of good wishes or goodwill and of kindness for ourselves and for all beings. And just as we were to begin the prayer, we were Zoom-bombed. For those unaware of what that means, 
It is where someone takes over the screen showing inappropriate video content, you know, usually of pornography or hate speech or other. And we were the unfortunate victims of child pornography zoom bomb. Now, it doesn't need to be said that it was a shocking, revolting, and traumatizing incident for us. The thing about something like that happening is that we felt victimized. We've, we were attacked. Um, and child pornography itself is an unbelievable and horrendous crime that is impossible for most of us to grasp. And yet it exists, and there it was. I was able to block the bomber within about 15 seconds, but it felt like many, many, many minutes while it was happening. And by the way, since that time, we have significantly tightened our security measures for our meetings, and Zoom has released a more secure version of their software to prevent these things from happening. So after the incident ended, the Sangha sat together in pretty much shock and trauma for a few minutes. And then we ended the meeting with the Metta Prayer. And prior to starting the Metta Prayer, I made a special reference or or, uh, I set an intention for us to send Metta to the perpetrator of the Zoom bombing incident. In addition to the perpetrators of the film and those filming, and of course, to the innocent children. Now, I know this incident caused some level of suffering for all the Sangha members that were there that day, mental, psychological, and possibly even post-traumatic suffering. And as if to act out the theme of the Dharma talk about suffering and affliction, a whole new layer of suffering was added to the suffering of the pandemic that initiated the launch of the Open Sangha and what we were discussing that day. What I'm here to talk about in this episode is not Zoom bombing, okay, or pornography or anything like that. The incident did lead me to reflect, though, and that reflection is what I'm here to say in this episode. What I want to talk about is our perception of victimhood. Before I go further, of course, children, women, and men who are used against their will in making pornography are, of course, victims. There are real victims of people committing horrible acts and real victims of systems, organizations, and governments who seemingly don't care about the results of their actions on people. There are more innocent victims as a result of all sorts of social injustice in the world. More then it seems our compassion can hold. It's just too big. But digging deeper to a level that's beyond criminal activities and social injustice, at a more, you know, inherent human experience level, I'm talking about an attitude of victimhood that we can witness and see all around us and and within us, especially now during the pandemic. We feel like victims of things we perceive to be threatening us, making us fearful, angry, and suspicious. Everywhere we look, we see scenarios of angry victims, protesting victims, gun-toting victims, conspiracy theory victims, blaming our new global pandemic experience on anyone and everyone, blaming lockdown 
vaccination conspiracies, physical distancing, masking, business closing orders, and those that issue those orders, blaming them as the problem. You know, if you can't blame the virus, someone or something must be to blame. There has to be some cause behind the virus. There has to be a bigger agenda, since the virus doesn't have an agenda. There has to be something so that it will all make sense. And even those who may not be protesting or looking for a country political party or government leader to blame, they feel like victims too. If you do an honest reflection and meditation on all the emotions you see swirling about you now, the grief, the sadness, the fear, the anger, you may get a glimpse of how you feel like a victim too if you haven't come to terms with that response in yourself already. You know, why can't things be back to normal? Why can't I just run into the store and pick up a loaf of bread or what I need to make a salad? Why can't I see my parents in assisted living? Why can't I pop out of the door without taking a mask? Why, why, why? Are we victims? Are we all victims of the COVID-19 pandemic? Are we victims of this novel virus? We didn't bring it on ourselves. And we are victimized, right? So we must be victims. When we find ourselves in the midst of a life that doesn't make any sense all of a sudden, that has taken away our feeling of control, we search for patterns to trace back to how, why, what, and get a grasp on how it will all end. We search for a distinct cause. Who or what did this is, and what did this to us and who is still doing it to us? And what can we do about it? That's the rub, right? We, we know we can't do much as individuals except wear a mask, wash our hands, practice physical distancing, and stay home as much as possible. But we are seeing that even our sincere practice of those steps recommended by scientific guidelines, even though they have helped the curve, you know, flattened the curve, they haven't made this horrible reality go away as fast as I think we all feel it should. I recently read an email from a functional medicine doctor I follow, Chris Kresser, for anybody who follows him. He wrote something that really struck me. He talked about a concept that came from social and policy planning, and it's a concept that was referred to as a, quote, wicked problem, unquote. And he detailed how our current time in the pandemic is perfectly described by that concept of a wicked problem. A wicked problem, he says, is a, quote, problem that is difficult or impossible to solve because of incomplete, contradictory, or, and changing requirements that are often difficult to recognize, unquote. This problem that doesn't seem to have a solution is referred to as wicked because it denotes a resistance to solution, to a solution. So that's the wickedness of it rather than being evil. He went on to share 14 characteristics of a wicked problem outlined by concepts 
advanced by Robert Horn, a Harvard political science, who called them social, a social mess. And they are, one, no unique, correct view of the problem. Two, different views of the problem and contradictory solutions. Three, most problems are connected to other problems. And there we find our interdependence, don't we? Four, data are often uncertain or missing. The next one, multiple value conflicts. The next, ideological and cultural constraints. The next, political constraints. The next, economic constraints. Then there's often illogical or alogical or multi-valued thinking. The next, numerous possible intervention points. The next, consequences difficult to imagine. Then we have three more, considerable uncertainty and ambiguity, great resistance to change, and problem solvers out of contact with the problems and potential solutions. These concepts struck Chris Kresser as the perfect definition of the quote-unquote social mess we find ourselves in, and I agree. And as he points out, they trigger our fight-or-flight response because we feel trapped due to these 14 characteristics that have become our new normal. None of these characteristics indicate any sense of stability, control, or indication of what's going to happen. I was struck by the use of the term wicked in Chris's email, which usually connotes evil, right? It describes what we're witnessing when people are stuck in a horrible situation that they know they can't control. And the response is a fight response because what is triggered in us is that feeling of victimhood that feeling that this is unjust, sparking anger and outrage at whoever or whatever we feel we can blame. Whomever or whatever released this virus must be wicked, must be evil, because we are now victims of it. I too, of course, experience waves of grief, sadness, fear, anger, and sometimes a sense of hopelessness, and also sometimes outrage, witnessing the obvious inadequacies of the government response to this pandemic. What is happening is that we're collectively facing the truth of life. This is the Buddhist lesson here. This is the cut to the chase. Together, we are facing the truth of life. We don't like it. It's a truth that others less fortunate than us, most of us, have already had to face in their lifetimes. But we didn't have to. And now we do. We have been smacked in our collective and previously comfortable faces with the need, the demand, that we find a way to accept, despite our clinging otherwise, accept that we have little control of the things that happen to us. The only thing we can control is our response to the things that happen to us. We are collectively facing what I call the triple threat of suffering that the Buddha taught as the three sufferings together simultaneously. 
In this pandemic, we're facing these three sufferings all at once. The first is the suffering of suffering. That's illness, injury, loss, and grief. The second is the suffering of change, that life will change. People and circumstances will change. They'll decline. They'll deteriorate. They'll disappear. And the third suffering is the suffering of conditioned existence, or what the Buddha called pervasive suffering. This is a suffering of being of the nature, of having the nature or inherent condition that is impermanent and changeable, of which we have no control over. See, we can't run. Although I know some try to run, running to second homes, yet with full knowledge that in a global pandemic there is no place this virus does not exist, so we can't run. We can hide, and we can fight, but hiding won't make it go away, and there is not much we can fight as individuals, which is why we lash out at this wicked problem in ways aligned with whatever our persistent worldview was and is. If we mistrust the government, then we lash out there, If we tend to curl up in a ball when bad things start happening to us, drowning in victimhood, then that's how we're responding. But there is another way, and that is to focus on holding yourself and everyone else in a loving spirit of compassion and tenderness. Everyone is hurting. Lashing out makes yourself hurt while you hurt others. Hiding in victimhood is not allowing yourself to see all those around you suffering too. Or denying or spiritual bypassing can be equally dangerous because it tends to put your focus on places other than the now, other than the reality that is happening now, and that too is clouding your view of all those around you suffering in this new reality. Symptoms of a victimhood response would be not offering a smile, not putting on your mask as a love offering to others, not by making others invisible to you, by arguing on Facebook or Twitter about the right solution to the problem when you are in no position to offer any solution other than compassion. In verse 18 of the 37 practices of bodhisattvas, Togme Zampo's words offer insight into our feelings and offers us a practice we could all do in this time of great suffering. He wrote, Though you lack what you need and are constantly disparaged, afflicted by dangerous sickness and spirits, without discouragement, take on the misdeeds and the pain of all living beings. That is the practice of bodhisattvas, unquote. Tubton Chodron writes about this verse in her book, Don't Believe Everything You Think, Living with Wisdom and Compassion. She wrote about this verse under the subhead, Self-Centered Mind is the Culprit. She wrote, quote, We usually react in one of two ways to misfortune. One option is to become upset and angry, wanting to strike back at society or whomever we deem to be the cause of our ruin. Another option is to become depressed and throw a pity party for ourselves. Feeling helpless and hopeless, we throw up our hands. Unquote. 
She goes on to say that instead of blaming others, we should turn to our own self-centered mind and point the finger at that. Now, this doesn't mean to criticize or hate ourselves, but to recognize and try not to connect with or not to identify with self-centered thinking that naturally arises in time of suffering. Watch and recognize these thoughts in us, remembering it's only a thought. But it's not a part of the true, pure nature of mind. And it's not something we need or have to act on because it's just a thought. Studying this kind of thinking that can harm us and harm others can help us eliminate it. Being constantly angry, upset, frustrated, disappointed, and depressed is absolutely exhausting. It's unhealthy. And it affects not only ourselves, but everyone around us. And they, too, are going through tremendous suffering now. What would happen if instead we chose to give up that kind of thinking? You know, frontline workers in health care, grocery, postal, delivery, food service, gas station, and many other operations are giving a lot. They're giving up a lot. Some of them are giving up everything for us. Their sacrifices are noble. We too can give some things up. We can give up the thinking that causes our own and others suffering and instead see all these situations and people like they are illusions. In verse 24 of the 37 practices of bodhisattvas, Zampo teaches, quote, all forms of suffering are like a child's death in a dream. Holding illusory appearances to be true makes you weary. Therefore, when you meet with disagreeable circumstances, see them as illusory. That is the practice of bodhisattvas. Unquote. Now, before you get ready to jump on me and say, no, this is real, this is real suffering, it's not a dream, it's not an illusion, I will answer, of course, it is, it's real. But since life, according to the Buddha, has an illusory quality, because everything changes, and because everything is impermanent, and because everything is interdependent, That means it has an illusory quality. You can't point to a thing as fixed and discrete. And this is how it's always going to be. This is how it always was. And this is how it will be in the future. We know that that's not the case. And we certainly know that now. This pandemic is part of that illusory quality that is smacking us in the face. In the four thoughts that turn the mind to Dharma, let's look at the first two thoughts that we are taught to reflect on. Number one, our precious human existence needs to be made meaningful. And number two, death, mortality, and impermanence. This is part of our life, and we need to think about it. The life of each being is like a water bubble. So I need to depend on the Dharma to help me live and die peacefully. So there's two thoughts I want you to take away those first two things. It's reflecting on our human existence and reflecting on our fact that this human existence will end. But the two facts I want you to take away are the meaningfulness of it and the peacefulness of it. 
What if we gave up our clinging to the negative emotions we feel and see the situations around us as illusions that appear to exist in a certain way, but when we examine them, they don't exist the way they thought we thought they did? They're not discreet. They're not fixed. They're not permanent. They're not dependent only on themselves. This enables us to, to, to disconnect from being upset. You know, of course, people that make us angry and the situation of the pandemic, that they do exist, but they exist dependent on other things. And those chains or webs of interdependence will change. These things will change. The pandemic will end or evolve. So the only thing we can do at this point is to respond with compassion because we know we can't control all these interdependent things and we really don't know where it's going to end up. We are so used to being in control. Progress and technology has brought most of us a comfort and convenience that we are totally dependent on. So when nature interferes with our comfort, with storms and with viruses, instead of understanding the very naturalness of nature, we look for someone or something to blame. We blame the meteorologist for missing the forecast. And we blame the utility company for not preventing a power failure or not fixing it fast enough. We blame governors for closing businesses to save lives and prevent our hospitals and healthcare systems from being overwhelmed. Being a victim seems to be our go-to when nature does what nature does. Nature, and all our lives really, because we're part of nature, is mostly out of our control and outside of our ability to predict what comes next. We know that we will die. We know that we are of the nature to be sick and die. We don't know when and we don't know how, but we hold on to an illusion that it's far off or doesn't exist. Yet it could be today or tomorrow. We make detailed plans for the day, the week, the year, the decade, as if the planning ensures it will happen as planned. But these are illusions, aren't they? If anything, the pandemic has taught us that our plans, our health, our very lives can be shattered by a virus. We are not in control. This pandemic illustrates the Buddhist teaching of interdependence, change, and impermanence in a profound way. So, are we victims? If we are, we're victims of only one thing. We're victims of life, right? We're victims of living. We are victims of the very nature that gave us life. And it's that life that we all share interdependently. That, and it's that life that we should honor in each other rather than looking for who is to blame for what we're suffering with now. The suffering, too, is part of that life, as the Buddha taught. What we can control about that suffering is how we respond. Do we respond like victims? Or do we respond like the brave frontline workers and first responders serving us every day to make these times better for us? You know, the teacher Chogum Trumpa said that, quote, chaos is very good news. Huh. Trumpa's reference to chaos 
is pointing to the meaning derived from the Greek, meaning a void or formless state of matter before the cosmos was created. Trumka's son further explained the use of the word chaos as indicating the openness where things fall apart and then new creations arise. The space created by chaos provides an opportunity to reconnect with what lies under the chaos and negativity, our inherent awakened nature. When things seem very bad, then there is an opportunity for something very good to take place. I have seen many examples of very good things taking place during this pandemic, and I continue to see opportunities where even more good may be born from this, this experience. That is, if we, we reconnect to our inherent goodness that is also, also the inherent goodness in everyone else. We need to continue to allow ourselves to be motivated um, by the good in each of us instead of the passion, aggression, and ignorance. If we, we continue to cling to the aggression and ignorance and fear and anger, we won't see the possibilities of good in ourselves and others. We need to be brave and strong like the frontline workers and first responders so that we will engage with one another in ways that open us up rather than close us down. Feeling like victims closes, close us down. Feeling like victims is not a noble response to suffering. And that noble response to suffering is what the Buddha taught. And this brings us back full circle to my original Dharma talk I gave to the open Sangha the day we were Zoom bombed. The talk was on how we can have a noble response to affliction and suffering and how affliction and suffering can contribute to our overall happiness by offering more meaning to our lives, by reframing our little stories, our little baby everyday stories with meaning and then becoming big stories. When things feel out of control, when everything seems in chaos, as Trump, Trumpa said, maybe we should see this as good news, see this as an opportunity to create ourselves anew, not as victims, but as compassionate helpers birthing a new world of possibility. If we look for these positive patterns and meanings in ourselves and others, during this pandemic, we can overcome the habit of victimhood, which is looking for negative meanings in the face of suffering. This is our opportunity for deep retreat. This retreat will help create a noble, compassionate response and soft, safe resting places in our hearts where fear, anger, hopelessness, and victimhood used to reside. May it be so. Now that's it for this episode. And as a reminder, don't forget that there are many ways to join me and others in either our private donation-supported Everyday Sangha, which meets every other week via Zoom on Thursday evenings, 7.30 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time, or our new free public open Sangha every week, alternating Tuesday afternoons at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time 
with me, Wendy Shinyo, and then on Wednesday evenings at 7.30 p.m. with Levi Shinyo-sensei. This week, it's the alterna- alternation is Wednesday evening at 7.30 with Levi Shinyo-sensei. Look for details on my website at www.everyday-buddhism.com and you can read all about the Open Sangha, Everyday Sangha, um, and everything we're doing on Everyday Buddhism. There's also plenty of Facebook groups to look for. There's a public open, there's a public Everyday Buddhism um, Facebook group, as well as a private Everyday Sangha and a private Open Sangha group. So Look around, and I'm sure you'll find it. And any questions, you can write to me at www.everyday-buddhism.com. Until next time, keep finding ways to make yours and all others' days better. <laughs>